This episode of Promised Land uses audio clips that contain language and subject matter that are graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. I've never lied to you. Your Bible is full of lies. Your sky god makes no sense. If he was all perfect, why don't he come down and do something? If he can heal everybody in a minute, why doesn't he heal them all? Why do he make all these different races to fight and to kill? Why does he bring some into the world born blind? America, 1973. Christian America. Jehovah's America. Bible America, 1973. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain by following me. Why don't you deny yourself? Why don't you deny yourself? Why don't you say yes to this cause and no to that slave system? I thank you. I thank you. I thank you because my words are spirit and my words are life. This is a revolution that will heal you. This is a father that will save you. This is one that will shepherd you through every storm. Jones had to be involved in every aspect of the People's Temple. Every single detail had to be ran by him first, before anyone could do or go anywhere. He felt that something would go terribly wrong if he wasn't in the know of Temple affairs. Even with the Temple growing in number, Jones never put his full trust in anyone and was the only one who knew everything going on in the Temple. He was present for every meeting no matter how long they went for and some would go on for hours. He even had a special basin to quote, relieve himself because he didn't have the time to use the restroom and miss something being said. No more pissing. Get a container for me, no more pissing in the ground. Now I hope it doesn't have a bad effect on your leader. You people all tighten me up. God damn you sons of bitches, God damn you. I sure as hell would be glad to walk to the fucking toilet, but I don't have the time to walk to the goddamn toilet. Son of a bitch. Pour liquid in to keep my, my urinary system to function. So it's nothing but liquid, but you all gotta take, so, okay, okay. Now I gotta piss in a pot, and there won't be no pot, so I'll stay in there the goddamn bladder burst. There won't be no pot. No, they won't be. Because you sons of bitches, anything I do, you got to do. God damn you. Why don't you work like I do then? Why don't you take the burdens I do then? Jones appealed to many different followers. Some were Bible-based, some healing-based, some there for the socialist goals. So Jones had to make sure his sermons appealed to all. His sermons were very lengthy and would tend to ramble on and on about many different topics at one time. He had to please everyone with the way he chose to preach. It was almost impossible to absorb everything he was saying. He did it in a way that people remembered and grabbed onto parts they wanted to hear, the parts that meant something to them in their beliefs. His sermons were very long and very exhausting for members to sit through, some going on for three to four hours at a time. But it was even more exhausting for Jones, who was always exerting his full energy he never stood still for long, always yelling and waving his arms, or walking through the people, or marching around the stage. 
His sermons were always full of life. Even during dinners the temple had, Jones would be talking through his portable sound system. Now, I will not review the 13th chapter mark because it says the same thing, only some errors. The story is told just a little different. Every time you read the Bible, the story is told just a little different. That's what King James has done to the Bible. It's like four people that are on a corner watching an accident. Not one of them can tell the truth about it. They all see it differently. And most churches will say, that's the way you've got to take the Bible, four people witnessing. Well, we don't take four people on a corner and judge our life by what four people on the corner say, do we? But this Bible is to be taken as what constitutes hell and heaven, your fate, your future, everything you do. The church tells you you've got to believe according to this Bible. And yet these preachers will stand when you show them a discrepancy and they'll say, well, look at it this way. It was like four different people looking at an accident. Well, if these people are just people, then throw it away. We don't need people. We're not looking for four people that were watching an accident. We want to hear God tell what he's doing himself. We want God to speak for himself. We don't want four people telling us what God said. We want God to tell us for himself. When he wasn't in Redwood Valley, he was on bus number seven on his way to speak to another group. His work was never done. There was always the hungry who needed fed or the naked who needed clothed. And Jones wouldn't stop until he could help every last person. All of this took a major toll on Jones' physical and emotional well-being. He made the temple reliant on him in his own well-being so he couldn't afford to run himself down. He had to always be on. This started his thought process of anything he did to benefit himself would in turn benefit the temple as well as anyone who needed the temple's assistance. Jones would occasionally indulge in a few things that were frowned upon to temple members, one of which he liked to go to the movies. Whenever he was out of town, he would head to the cinemas to catch the latest mystery or action film. Temple members were of course unaware of this, but it was a way for him to unwind for a few hours. He also enjoyed taking his family on the occasional vacation. Since he did not have any income, he would use the temple funds to cover a week or two week vacation for himself and his family. Again, temple members were never told where they were going. It was said they were going on a quote, important business trip. Better listen, you might get your goddamn brain filled with something other than bullshit. Now, don't, 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 don't be playing any games over there and looking at fingernails and that kind of bullshit. We let, a lot, we let a lot of things go on here. We let entertainment, we let dances, we let movies, we let decadent dancing. And I say decadent dancing because uh, anything that is loud and noisome and isn't socially redemptive is decadent. But we realize that people make changes slowly and we're not intolerant. Maybe we should be more intolerant. But some of you, by God, once in a while, all your mind is on is dancing and fucking on a movie. So once in a while, you might take time to get your mind on something of a revolutionary nature. But over time, growing pressures didn't allow for these indulgences. So Jones turned to something he inherited from his father. By 1971, Jones started taking medication to keep him up with the ever-growing needs of the temple. 
he would take amphetamines to help him stay awake and on top of everything, then he would take sleeping pills to bring him down in order to get sleep. The more he took one, the more he needed the other. Supply was never a question, because Jones had physicians on hand to help him along with members who worked in the medical field that were able to get a hold of the medications he needed. Side effects from the medications were harder for Jones to hide from his members. He would have many outbursts of anger from the speed he took, but this was easy for members to see past as he was always short-tempered. But one side effect that was harder to ignore was that he would have red, watery eyes. He started to wear dark sunglasses at all times to hide his eyes from people. He would claim he wore them because his inner powers were so great that holy energy would glow from his eyes, and if followers looked directly in his eyes, they would be scorched from his power. The medications amped up his paranoia to an almost alarming degree. He started to tell his followers that the CIA and FBI were listening to them and watching their every movement. He would warn members that the FBI would talk bad about him and would try to sway members to leave the temple. He also spoke of the threat of hitmen attempting to assassinate him for all his good work and fear of his word being spread. Security guards were already on patrol at the Redwood Valley property, but they were now armed with guns to protect the temple and its members. Security guards were made to get conceal and carry permits so that nothing illegal is brought up with temple members. Jones made sure to have guns aboard bus number seven, and security guards were also assigned uniforms. They had matching shirts, pants, ties, and berets. They were meant to look intimidating, not only to the outside world, but to the temple members as well. Security guards noticed that Jones, who was once up all hours of the night working tirelessly in his office, could now be found snoring loudly every night. The man who was always bursting with energy was now sleeping, and they couldn't understand why or what had changed. We were all family. Uh, two of his sons married two of my sisters, and that's how I became so close to Jim Jones and got to know him in a way that other people didn't necessarily see. He was very ill. Um, as we became his, in, in charge of his security, it's, the way it actually happened is that a member approached Jim Jones and when he was walking up today, one day from his house, and she approached him, startled him, and he was actually afraid. So we heard this loud call over the PA system. I need my sons up here right away, right away. We come up there like, what's, what's going on? And so now you guys are gonna be my personal security. Jones openly talked about sex with his family. He explained everything to his kids at a young age and would sometimes speak about it to his members. He explained to his kids that their mother was not able to please him sexually anymore, and that's why he took Carolyn Layton as his lover. Jones was always controlling of members' lives, so much so he wanted to know everyone they were sleeping with or thought about sleeping with. He wanted to control who was in bed with whom at all times, even telling some members they were not allowed to sleep with who they wanted to. Though Jones was against public displays of affection and sexual relationships within the temple, the drugs started to make him lose control sexually. He grew interested in sleeping with other women not long after Carolyn. Not wanting to be spoken about in a negative light, he chose the women he wanted to sleep with carefully. He picked younger women who he felt would not say no to him. The first woman he chose was Karen Toe Layton, Larry Layton's second wife 
after Jones took Carolyn away. Jones knew that Larry was devoted to him and that Karen was always attracted to him, so he knew this would be an easy pick for him. Not to mention, Karen was one of the most attractive women in the People's Temple. After Karen, Jones took his sexual desires to other temple women. With Jones's ego, he felt he was doing these women a favor, as well as getting gratification for himself. He felt that all women, no matter their age, were attracted to him and wanted to sleep with him. He would often tell them, quote, you can do this because you love me. Some of the women would get promotions for sleeping with Jones, such as Debbie Layton. After having sex with him a few times, she was promoted to a position in the inner circle alongside Carolyn Layton, Karen Toe Layton, Terry Buford, Sharon Amos, Tim Stone, and a few others. It didn't take long for word to spread about Jones's sexual affairs. Jones didn't sleep with all Temple women. He clearly had preferences, even though he never admitted to them. Once his devoted follower, Patty Cartmel, heard about women sleeping with Jones, he chose to promote her instead of sleeping with her, as she was not attractive enough to him. He promoted Patty to be in charge of his quote, fuck schedule, a little notebook that had listed who Jones was to sleep with and when. Jones didn't only sleep with women in the People's Temple but he also slept with the men as well. Never as often as he would sleep with women, but regularly enough that the temple leaders would warn some of the men, quote, if you ask father to fuck you in the ass, take a douche. Jones said that he had to be all things for his people and some male followers needed to be sexually humbled or more dedicated to the cause and intercourse with Jones was how to get those results. Members clearly knew about Jones's sexual encounters with other temple members, but no one outright spoke about it or confronted him, except for one woman named Juanel Smart. She asked Jones, quote, Jim, why do you only sleep with the whites and never the blacks? He yelled back at her, claiming that white people had to be more dedicated to the cause and lose their bourgeois attitudes, and sex was the only way to do that. He said that African Americans didn't have that issue, so there was no reason to have sex with them. You hear what she's talking about? She didn't know, but, but she, oh, the goddamn discharges. She said, you were pregnant, you only fuck white women, blah, 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 blah. And she thought, I was going to just read this. Your short one, did I said, no, nah, sister, you sent me a message in the calmest voice. She counted on one of the two things. I either fuck her or throw her out. I didn't do either one. She was really frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> she spelled along pretty well. I said, now, sister, uh, I'm going to read this. My face turned four flushes of red. I, uh, she, you want to read all that public? I said, yes. I've got nothing to hide. Any criticism you want to give me, I've got an answer for it. Because I'm pure. I'm honest. Right. So I dealt with this. I said, now, you don't know the black one because I don't intend to you know the black one. They'd have enough pain. You've only known the white one. I said, now, if, if, if it's discriminatory, if it's anything, you accuse me of fucking the white. I said, what is sex? It's a hostile act. It's aggressive. Mm -hmm. I'm very aggressive. So I said, if anything, if I'm prejudiced against white. Right. If I'd only fuck white people. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You get the point. <laughs> because the sexual part of me is a very aggressive side. I mix it with gentleness. And the only reason I'm saying that is because I might have to fuck somebody here. You're the only one that can do it. But it's the truth. 
Is the truth the gentleness is there. But the gentler I get, the further I get away from sex. If you follow me. You follow what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The gentler moments is further away from me. Because I'm very aggressive. I can, I can uh, give it all that. Oh, shit, with this stuff. It's such a thing. This is a painful subject. I hate to talk about it. And others hate to talk about it. And it's painful to use it into it. Jones decided to take a chance with a new sexual partner. He wanted to have sex with Gray Stone, but knew he couldn't lose the devotion he had from Tim Stone because he was almost an equal to Jones because of how much of an asset he was to the temple. Jones had to plan this out properly, or everything could quickly fall apart. Stone, aside from Jones, knew the most about People's Temple. And if he left the temple, he could bury Jones and the People's Temple easily. It was common knowledge in the temple that Stone's marriage was rocky. Grace would openly talk to other members about how Tim would spend so much of his time with Jones that their sex life was non-existent. Jones of course knew this because he had cards made on every member that were constantly being updated. Jones didn't have long to wait for his opportunity. With Grace openly telling Tim she was unhappy and threatened to end their marriage, Tim went to Jones and asked what he could do to save his marriage. Jones then explained to Tim that Grace needed sexual attention and that Tim should allow her to be able to explore that with others. So Tim agreed to an open marriage with Grace, allowing the two to sleep with others if they wanted to. Grace and Jones started to sleep together and Tim found a single mother of five children to sleep with. It was in April 1971, Grace found out she was pregnant. The right ones haven't talked yet. Grace, Grace denies I fucked her and she got pregnant by immaculate conception. Sure does, on the headlines there, they all died, denied. Never had a fuck with me. And some, some folk there witnessed it and put the foam in, put the goddamn diaphragm on, and saw she took the pill. She still got pregnant, this simple bitch. Which is which? Okay. Although family life wasn't easy for the Joneses, outside appearances were all the same. Marceline was always by her husband's side, standing in for him when he was out of town, and always there to work for the temple. The children seemed happy as well, though they never seemed to accept Carolyn as a mother figure, even though she would claim so to her parents. Carolyn felt like she was a second mother to the Jones children, but they never reciprocated those feelings, particularly Stephen. The children were forced to spend time with both their mother and Carolyn, even on family vacations. The Jones children lived a relatively happy life. They had their vacations together, and they were able to do things other temple children weren't, such as go to the movies and wear better clothes. They even had horses, dogs, and their newly adopted chimpanzee, Mr. Muggs, who lived in a cage that connected to the outside of their house in Redwood Valley. Jones would claim that he rescued Mr. Muggs from death in laboratory experiments, but it's later believed that he bought Mr. Muggs from a pet store. Mr. Muggs would go on to become the unofficial People's Temple mascot. Yes, I can lift, there's an energy about me that I can lift you to the other planet, but the other planet's just a stage of evolution, just like we're a stage higher than the reptiles and the chimpanzee, although sometimes when I look at our chimp up there, Mr. Muggs, who comes to church with us, I wonder who's higher, because he's awfully loyal to me. He better not mess with me with Mr. Muggs around. 
but not touch me with Mr. Muggs around. You get bit. And I don't mean just bit. You get tore into Because Muggs remembers that I saved him when they were going to cut him up. Something. He's loyal anyway. And yeah, yeah, that's what I got against you. Some of my people say they don't come. They're always saving dogs and animals. And you better go over and look at these dog pounds and see how they're shoving these little animals in these gas vats. There's only a step, only just a step before they'll be shoving black people in them. They'll be shoving us in them next. Stephen was 12 years old when he took his first handful of his father's quaaludes. This was his first in numerous suicide attempts. Though later Stephen said that he didn't actually intend to commit suicide, it was more like a cry for help. Even after these attempts, Jones never felt compelled to start hiding his medication for his son's safety. Convenience seemed to be more important than the safety of his child when it came to his drugs. It isn't known if Marcelin was aware of all the extramarital affairs he was having with half the temple members or not, but it wouldn't be long before she was made very aware. On January 25, 1972, John Victor Stone was born. On his birth certificate, it states his mother as Grace Lucy Gretsch Stone and his father as Timothy Oliver Stone. But on February 6, 1972, Tim Stone signed the following statement, quote, To whom it may concern, I, Timothy Olive Stone, hereby acknowledge that in April 1971, I entreated my beloved pastor, James W. Jones, to sire a child by my wife, Grace Lucy Gretsch Stone, who had previously, at my insistence, reluctantly, but graciously convened thereto. James W. Jones agreed to do so reluctantly after I explained that I very much wished to raise a child, but was unable, after extensive attempts, to sire one myself. My reason for requesting James W. Jones to do this is that I wanted my child to be fathered, if not by me, by the most compassionate, honest, and courageous human being the world contains. The child, John Victor Stone, was born on January 25, 1972. I am privileged beyond words to have the responsibility for caring for him, and I undertake this task humbly with the steadfast hope that the child will become a devoted follower of Jesus Christ and be instrumental in bringing God's kingdom here on earth. He has been a wonderful nurturer, as he has been his wonderful natural father. I declare under penalty of perjury that the foregoing is true and correct. Later Tim claimed that all of this was false and he was forced into signing this document to cover Jones in case Stone wanted to leave the temple and take John Victor with him. Tim Stone said he signed it because he knew that this document would never stand up in court if the time ever came that it needed to be used. He felt that this was just a way for Jones to belittle him in the worst way possible. That the entire congregation of members would see that Jones fathered a child with his wife and this was a tactic to keep Tim Stone in his place below Jones. Many years ago, because of some things in his own past that Grace Stone unveiled about him, namely one of which was that he dressed in women's clothing and paraded in Santa Rosa streets, and something about his past that was not to his liking and to anyone else's liking or to our own good. She threatened to leave him 
and threatened to cause great difficulty. Also because of his playing with guns, which was uh, not the same thing to do, she, he gave her a lot of things to go on. So he asked me at that point, as some of you know, to help him out of his dilemma by doing something with Miss Stone. As all of you know, except those who have newly arrived, that I did in great pain because I never had any, anything but the most clear revulsion for that woman. No way do I convey to you, I don't suppose, those of you who couldn't do something like that, because only a principal person can understand what my principal's heart is telling you. Unless you have ever had to do something with somebody you hated and deplored them and were disgusted with them, as I was disgusted with that woman from the time she came in and she used to sit in our services back in Redwood Valley and have her long, ugly, black hair down in her face pulling on it while black people would be testifying or anyone would be singing or doing anything. She'd be pulling at her hair over her eyes until I, in one government meeting, demanded that she cut it. I, my government board, of course, knew how much I detested her. I made that quite clear. I don't know of any person that ever caused me to rise to my feet and say, if you do any more of your threats, any more of your threats against my people or myself, I personally will take my hands and do you in. And for that moment, she began that, and Joyce will remember where that was. Joyce just arrived tonight. Where's Joyce? Where was that when I told her that? It was in your home, in your living room when I did that. That's right, in her living room. I told her in her living room. Uh, the whole process out of it came a lovely and beautiful one who doesn't know any connection with her and doesn't recognize her as his mother. And the beauty of time has healed and taken care of that. His mother is Maria, and that's the way it is here. If anyone ever makes any other issue, then you'll have difficulty with me. John is my son. Anyone who could look at him, you know that. Anyone looks at my baby pictures, his baby pictures, or look at him now. It's very easy to discern who he is. And if you were listening in any church meeting, I've told you all through the years. So there were things that had to be do, done. The old parable, any so-called Christian, even if you were a Christian, not a communist, and were supposed to be communist, you'd have understood that I become all things to all people, that by any means I might save the more. And I had to rescue Tim Stone because I knew then Tim Stone was too weak to be able to take public humility, public humiliation, and in any way to be made disreputable. This letter wasn't only intended to put Tim Stone in his place, it was also meant to put another in their place as well, as the letter had to be notarized. Of all the people he could have chosen to be the notary, Jones chose his wife Marcelin to be the witness. Though there are no accounts on how she took this news, it was clear in the coming weeks that her mood had changed dramatically. Not long after she learned of Jones fathering another member's child, she rented an apartment in Santa Rosa, about 60 miles south of Redwood Valley. Though she still came to do her duties to the temple on weekends, she now spent her weekdays in her new apartment. She also met a psychologist through work who she had fallen in love with and planned to leave Jones for. One evening, she had told Jones about the man she had met and told him that she was leaving him and planned to marry the psychologist and take the kids with her to Benning, Georgia. 
As soon as she told Jones, he immediately called the kids in for an emergency family meeting. He told the kids that their mother was leaving him and planned on taking them away from everything they knew to move to Georgia and asked them if they wanted to go. They all said they wanted to stay with their father because that was what they all knew and it sounded better than the unknown. Marceline quickly came back and asserted that she was still planning on leaving and taking the kids with her. Jones told her, quote, if you ever take my boys away, you'll be dead. This stopped Marceline dead in her tracks. She knew he meant every word he said. Though she stayed, even her kids knew that she was changed. Jim Jones Jr. stated, quote, of course mom wasn't happy after that. More than ever, she became a sad woman. When we were in the temple, we gave all of our time to the cause. The workers, which I was one, got an average of four to maybe six hours sleep a night, occasionally six, but many nights no sleep. And we were constantly tired. And we were required to work a minimum of 16 hours a day. And I would work anywhere from 16 to 18. And every Thursday night I would work all night long, you know, for over 24 hours. You go to your, the planning commission meetings and you stay up from, uh, from 9 o'clock in the evening until 7 o'clock next morning. You have to go right to a job or something or go back to school. Most of our members usually sitting in the junior choir with all the other kids, being in most of the time falling asleep and then getting yelled at while I woke up, which was around midnight. You know, they'd keep you, they'd keep you up even if you were a little kid until about at least one or two in the morning. But what, what was happening is I was becoming so exhausted and tired, I'd start getting real nervous because, you know, my body would start shaking. And I used to fantasize about crawling on my hands and knees and begging Jim Jones just to let me go to sleep. You gave up desires for, like, to go to a movie or to get a new dress, things that an ordinary person would want. The only thing we really desired was to get a little sleep, to maybe have, an, you know, like a hamburger from McDonald's was a huge treat. These were the only thing we really wanted. That was our desires. We, we gave up big desires. Even though Jim Jones controlled every aspect of the People's Temple, he wanted it to appear that members were also allowed to have voices in the temple. There was a board of elders that were a select handful of members that were handpicked and would sit down with Jones to help him make all the important decisions for the temple. Though in the end, Jones was the only one who really made the decisions. The members of the Board of Elders were Jones, Marcelin, Tim Stone, Archie Imus, Carolyn Layton, Mike Cartmel, and Sharon Amos. Over time, Jones decided to make a new board of members and called it the Planning Commission. No one knew exactly how members were chosen for the Planning Commission, but its members began with Jones, both Tim and Grace Stone, with Grace being appointed the head counselor, Jack and Reviana Beam, Carolyn Layton, Terry Buford, The Myrtles, Laura Johnson, and Patty Cartmel. Marceline would sometimes attend, but Jones didn't feel her attendance was needed. The planning commission was a great way for Jones to be able to hear about everything that went on in the temple. He was able to keep a close eye on members who may not be loyal enough to him, reward those whose loyalty was unwavered, and to impress women whom he chose to sleep with. The planning commission quickly grew in size to upwards of 100 members. Usually board meetings were held in temple homes, but with this many people, 
They would use temple offices or meet in the temple church after services. Jones would sit in a comfy couch with extra cushions, with food and soft drinks, and an oxygen tank next to him that he would regularly use with a face mask. Members never questioned why he had to use oxygen. They just said he needed to be relaxed and needed to conserve his energy because his tasks with the temple were so great. Planning commission meetings usually lasted hours and sometimes went until dawn. Some new members to the PC were confused by what was being talked about. They thought being asked to be a part of the planning commission was a great honor, only to find out that a lot of the talk was about who was having sex with who. It was almost like a hangout session more than actually achieving anything. Many temple members envied those who were on the planning commission. It was said by a survivor that even though members who were in the PC were constantly tired from their long hours, that a certain camaraderie was felt. These people really got to know each other and become close friends. They were able to take their guards down and be who they actually were on the inside. Jones would regularly take in convicted criminals from the justice system, stating to judges that he would help keep these criminals in line. It was normal for the People's Temple to handle any crimes within the temple. Jones made it very clear that the justice system was corrupt and that the police should never be called if something criminal happened within the temple. This is where the planning commission came to take on temple punishments. If a crime occurred within the temple, the accused would be brought in front of Jones in the planning commission to be judged. For such crimes as selling drugs, stealing, or committing assaults, the punishments would usually be beatings. Beatings were done with a board and sometimes a rubber hose. somebody involved in the uh, in the administration or what it was one of the temple officials one of the temple officials for smaller crimes against the temple such as sneaking out to the movies smoking a cigarette taking a drink or being disrespectful to father punishments were often a smack or two being assigned to night shifts or dirtier jobs such as cleaning the toilets it became regular for temple members to rat each other out to jones for anything there was never any real trust among members, or even family. Anything you did or said could be used against you, and you could end up in front of the entire temple being beat. By 1972, seven years after Jones brought his people to Mendocino County, Redwood Valley was beginning to feel too small for the People's Temple. Jones had no intentions of abandoning Redwood Valley as their home, but he had big plans for the People's Temple to expand its headquarters 
and he had his sights set on two major California cities. Promised Land is a cool-down media podcast. All audio clips for Promised Land come from the Jonestown Institute. For more information, visit their website at jonestown.sdsu.edu. Follow us on social media at Promised Land Cast and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.